as you're finding your place. This is just an interesting to me thing. Pick the music earlier on in the week. And after the music was all selected, it was heavy on Isaac Watts because I listened to a biography of him this week and, and was just moved by that. But I heard on the radio, had the, the radio station going, and they said it was uh, Franz Joseph Haydn's birthday. And I thought, oh, I know we've got, I should have just, just uh, this week, I should have looked and seen what he had written. And I, it was too late to change things. And I looked down and I realized he wrote this song we just sang. It was just a weird little God the weird little coincidence thing that uh, we, we ended up doing what I thought we should have been doing. Anyway, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is what God's word says. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing? if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Please be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It was late November 1963. I was one year and two months old, or I should say one year and two months young. My dad was 22 years young, the youngest Nebraska state trooper, and I think he was probably a pretty good one because they asked him, uh, as as the youngest guy, to be one of the drivers for a big governor's meeting that was happening in Nebraska. Dad told me he was pretty excited to be the driver. He had a a, a particular governor and governor's wife that he drove to events as they had this meeting. And uh, he, the second or third time I've heard this story, he told me uh, the state of the governor uh, that that he drove, and he told me that the governor's wife was inebriated the whole time. Um, But uh, I won't tell you who that was and what it was, but uh, he was there. He was excited. 
to be the driver for the governor, for the governor's meeting to be chosen for that. But what really excited him was he was going to get to go then with these governors to the Nebraska-Oklahoma football game that happened a big deal back in those days, every Thanksgiving. That was the Rock'em Sock'em. That was the game, Nebraska-Oklahoma, Thanksgiving Day. This is late November of 1963, remember. And something happened that changed everything down in Dallas. And President Kennedy was assassinated uh, that day, the day before the football game, the day when all the governors were there. And Dad has described to me what it was like to be there. See, back in those days, governors had more power than they do now. Now it's starting to come back. It seems like governors are getting more, and there's this fight uh, uh, within our, our system, the way our, our things are set up. But back then, governors were more powerful than they have been. And they thought, wow, if this is some sort of a plot, take out the president, what's coming for all these governors gathered together in one place? Is there a bomb? Is there uh, shootings? Is there... So it was high alert. And he describes the, the people crying uh, at, at Kennedy being shot, the sense of fear and terror and what's going to happen. And uh, uh, I looked it up, and, and he was telling me the truth. They did have the game the next day. I read the Lincoln and Nebraska newspaper this week from that day. They decided to have it, but no special activities. And Dad said, it didn't really matter at the time then, but I was so excited for that game that I never did get to go to. But uh, more than that, we were worried for our country. Little babies like me were worried about our diapers and our next bottle and all that stuff. But the people then had no idea what is going on. What does the future hold? It, it, this, it, it was just shocking. Then the man who did the assassination got assassinated or killed himself on, on national, got, was killed by somebody on national TV, and people just had no clue what's going on behind the scenes. Where is this leading us? And there was great fear of the unknown because of the known, which was so tragic. Tried to imagine what it was like for adults that were looking at the future in those days. There was great uncertainty. And then I look at us now, 2022, and we're looking at worldly upheaval, aren't we? If we're going to be honest, we're going to say, who knows what's happening and what's going to happen? In my memory, it's unprecedented. Economic issues. Now they're saying one in two chance of a recession. Something you economists understand about inverted curves and things like that and everything pointed towards something crazy. Shortages. They're saying expect them. Violence and anger. A surveillance state. More hateful of biblical Christianity and biblical Christians in our nation uh, than, than it's been. Government is God, working with banks to produce social credit scores. They've done this in China for years. You don't just have a credit score based on how well you pay your bills. Now 
they know. A woman at the latest economic forum said, uh, it's going to change forever. We'll be able to track every bit of spending that's ever been done. And they know what you buy and what you don't buy. And, and there's a system in place. If you protest at the wrong time for the wrong things, government's working with banks to shut you down. It's coming. You have less and less individual freedom than ever. It's an uncertain time. The world's system's favorite posture, an angry fist shaking at God like Stalin did on his deathbed, raised up and shook his fist at, at God, and his daughter said, what does that mean? Before he died. More than ever, a control over every aspect of your life. Be a good little girl or boy and subject yourself to whatever the soft totalitarian system tells you to do uh, with your body. And just ignore, just do, do, do. And then find some addiction, some bottle, some pill, some screen, some person, uh, some hero. Find that to make you comfortably numb. An indulgence in every form of anti-biblical instruction and direction imaginable. You say, how can this go? What's next? It can't get any. Yes, it can, and it does, and you watch it, and you see it. Mockery of everything church or moral or good. Hey, Danny, Dana Carvey was a good comic actor. He did George H.W. Bush so well, and Bush loved him. They were good buddies. He was pretty funny on the church lady, too, except we Christians have seen that, and we can laugh at ourselves. But the mockery that came in things like that from non-church people, assuming all church ladies are like that. Listen, I've known some church ladies that prayed for me and loved me and taught me and cared for me. My mom's a church lady. Not worthy of the world's laughter and scorn. But the world mocks what we believe and stand for. In the past, uh, it was more localized. In the past, individual nations and cultures faced severe societal upheaval. There was upheaval in communist Russia, and you read about that. You read about what it was like when that came in the middle of the night, and there they went. Gone. Some say 11 million people killed via death camps and the deliberate starvation of the Ukrainian people back then by Joseph Stalin. Then there was upheaval in Chairman Mao's China. And if you think 11 million were bad, how about 65 million? Gone. The great leap forward. Worlds were rocked in those individual nations. But what we have now going on is worldwide. Hang on to your hats. What's coming? There is global persecution of Christians. Well, I don't see it on the news. Well, you wouldn't see it on the news. Human life from womb to tomb disregarded. From governments to strangers on the street, the wanton killing of irreplaceable human lives. That woman... Ukraine, as they've 
moved back in. That picture I saw of her with a hole in her head. Well, she can be replaced. There'll be another woman to live in that house and maybe wear some of those clothes she had. But no, she can't be. She, with her own DNA, with her own fingerprints, her own life, every person wiped out is a person. Person's a person, no matter how small. Irreplaceable life. can restock the population, but not those individual people with their own unique lives. And we say, what is coming? Is there something coming? Is there not? Is it just uh, people like uh, saying things like this that just need to be uh, disregarded? Maybe you're like me. I sit in my house then and I just look at my stuff. Sometimes I look to my stuff to give me some sort of human comfort. I think about more stuff to buy. I regret the money I spent on stuff I don't want anymore because I wish I had that to buy more stuff. And there's a, there's a closing in on, uh, on just saying, I don't even want to look at this. I don't want to contemplate what's happening. Who's going to act nobly? Am I going to act nobly? Are you going to act nobly? How does a person prepare? How do I prepare? How do you prepare? What's coming down the line? What's coming down the line for Paula and me? What's coming down the line for the church family? What's there? What's, what's coming for, for our church's kids? Is there a Christian response The answer to the last question there is yes, there is a Christian response. It involves how you think. It's found in the pages of Scripture. It's on display in the pages of church history where people like us have faced harder times. And we've seen how they've done it and how God has provided and sustained. How do you live with the uncertainty not only Christians, by the way, saying there's uncertainty. Everybody says that. Nobody knows or seems to know. Well, one thing you can do is burrow into your Bible. Get to know your Bible. Um, You haven't for a while? Do it. Thinking of uh, in the Peanuts comic strip when Snoopy was going to read War and Peace. He was going to read one word a day. And so he would read one word, and the next day he would read the next word, and he was going to get through war and peace eventually. And, of course, Lucy is saying, you can't do it that way. Uh, Linus is trying to talk sense into him. Woodstock sits down, and the word that day is, as, as, as Woodstock's going to have Snoopy read, and the word that day is and, and Woodstock flies away mad. And Snoopy said, nobody gets to tell me how to read war and peace. I'm not telling you how to read your Bibles, but I am telling you, read your Bibles. And I would recommend not one word a day or a sermon on a Sunday. Uh, You have all these people making all these things and they are just flooding us. Every streaming service now makes their own shows and they're competing with each other. And and there's there's so much stuff for us. Uh, Find your Bible. It's okay if you have it in an online version. As long as you're able to make a distinction, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I am, 
and sometimes I like, and I'm moving more and more electronic. Uh, as long as you know that that electronic Bible you're reading is God's word, and it's distinct from the other books in your electronic library. I have to work at that, and I'm getting there on that. But understand, uh, there's been one anchor, one true word through history, through good times and bad times. Maybe through prayer, all this stuff that looks like it's coming, that is here in so many ways, maybe through prayer, and maybe God sends a great revival. That's part of church history too, and we pray for that. But understand, you need God. And as you read your Bibles, you need what we're going to talk about here the next three weeks. Uh, it's not just reading the Bible and being moral. It's, 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 it's the message from this text this morning. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at Jesus. The Bible says, look and live. The passage that John read this morning, uh, the Lamb of God, that Lamb when God was setting his people physically free from Egypt, and they had to take that perfect Lamb, slaughter it, paint the blood on the doorpost. And we used to sing that song in church, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. You need Jesus. You need the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We must do that. My goal this morning and throughout the week is, as, I, as I preach and interact, next Sunday, then Easter Sunday, then for a month of Sundays, then for uh, uh, as long as, as, as I get to preach, is to try and do my best to paint Jesus Christ as our only hope measure of my success and role as minister of the gospel depends on how clearly I can present the good news to everyone within reach about Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners, the one who has power to save, the Bible says, to the uttermost, completely save. His sufficiency, Jesus plus nothing. So let's look at the text right now. Let's think through this together. And let's pray for the Holy Spirit's help as we Engage the text. Lord, thank you for your help this morning. We are uncertain. We are uh, shaken. We would rather not look or think. We wonder what's happening. Help us, Lord. Anchor us. Give us joy and hope as we come back to the only thing that matters in life and death. Help us as we interact with your word today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Three points this morning. A proper view of yourself. Who are you? A proper view of Jesus. Who is he? A proper view of others. Do they even matter? First, a proper view of yourself. Who are you? We find ourselves in the text. People came to John the Baptist saying, who are you? Who are you? Cross-section of the culture had come out. John the Baptist was outside of culture. You had the Romans who'd taken over the world. These people didn't know it, but in A.D. 70, we know it because we can look back, A.D. 70 wiped out. Jesus talked about that. These people, all the war, all the pictures you've allowed yourself to see that you can manage, that happened. 
uh, when Rome came in and wiped out Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, up till that time, there was this unhealthy alliance. You had the Romans coming in and they allowed uh, the, the, the Jewish system of the priesthood and things to stand as long as they didn't get too out of line. Uh, they, they, they managed them and let, let uh, the church be part of culture. And so you had your scribes and your Pharisees, and they had God's word, they had the truth uh, in, in, in their culture. But then when Jesus came, they didn't recognize him as the Messiah that the Old Testament was pointing toward. But they were there. Structure. Everybody wants structure. I'll do it for structure. I'll do it to get along. We don't want uh, not structure. And John the Baptist came out of nowhere. And he starts baptizing people uh, out in the, around the Jordan River. And they finally said, we got to get this guy in line or somebody's going to get us in line and him in line. And so to keep the status quo, they came out and they said, who are you? We didn't see you coming. Who are these people that came to John the Baptist? Well, it was a great cross-section of the culture. Every one of the four Gospels talks about him. They talk about who was there. And it wasn't just one uh, disaffected social class. It wasn't just one economic status. It wasn't just one race even. There were soldiers there. Those understandably would have been Roman soldiers out there that were there to to, to parade around. There were people there. There was a cross-section of culture. They came, and they not only got baptized, but they said, what should we do? Mark 1, 4 and 5 says this, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. He wasn't there to be the Messiah. He was there to proclaim the way for the Messiah. And people knew they weren't right. They said, everything is off, and I'm off myself. And that's what we can honestly say. It's not just them out there doing all this. It's us. We need Jesus. We're wrong. We're off. And they came out, and they said, I'm going to repent of my sins. And that baptism was a different kind of baptism than the baptism we do here. It was a, uh, there were other groups that baptized in the same way. And the, the water was a symbolic washing off. Uh, there was a group called the Essenes that did that. People would say, I'm a sinner. I want to work on my heart. Symbolically, I will be baptized. I'll have water wash over me as what I want to hope happens in my heart. And they came out from all cultures. Luke says there were tax collectors. There were soldiers. There were people rich enough to have two tunics so he could advise them to give one to the poor. Uh, there were enough of the people coming out that the religious elites that were entrenched in their culture noticed. If you lived in that day, whoever you are here, whatever your age, whatever your social standing, whatever your sex, whatever uh, makes you you, you would not have been out of place there getting baptized by John. Nobody was out of place. They all came. And they were repentant. And they were sinners. And they understood that. And they didn't know what to do, but they knew they needed a change in their life. And so they came for that. People who said, there's something wrong on the inside of me. Culture is different than what 
I read about in the Bible growing up. The nation that I grew up in was different than it used to be. But there's something also wrong with me, as well as in my culture. I want to partake in this cleansing. Wash me symbolically on the outside, because I'm filthy on the inside. I said, I'm crooked deep down. It's not just a former president who would say, I am not a crook. We all want to say, I'm not a crook. We are. There's that poem. It was written originally, it's a nursery rhyme, originally written about the border between Scotland and England, allegedly. But I think it describes each and every one of us along with the world we live in. Remember this from when you were a kid? There was a crooked man and he walked a crooked mile, found a crooked sixpence upon a crooked stile. He had a crooked cat that caught a crooked mouse and they all lived together in a little crooked house. Uh, That's us. That's us. And their verbal repentance and their ceremonial washing translated into them then saying, now how do I live? And you remember John gave them advice on how to live morally. He could do that. He was an authority on that. He said, if you're a soldier, uh, which would be in in Rome's army, he didn't say, quit being a soldier. He said, be a good soldier. and Don't complain about your wages and all that. He said, if you have two tunics and you see somebody that has none, give him one. He gave advice on how to live. Uh, There was a moral gateway. There was a moral something or other. People saying, I'm at the end of myself. Do you care how you live? If you knew there was a way that God wants you to live and you came face to face with the fact that you're not in sync with that holiness with which, without which no one will see the Lord, would it bother you? I think it would when you stop and really think about it, and that's good. It should. Would it bother you enough to dig a little deeper into God's word as you attempt to take action? Who are you as a non-Christian, if that's what you are? You are someone who needs God every day of your life, Christian or non-Christian, a person who knows you're unable to be righteous enough in your own strength to earn a seat in heaven, a person who therefore, without repentance and subsequent faith in Jesus Christ, is on your way to hell, where you will just stew in your sins, hopeless for eternity. And that's where we all are without Jesus. The first domino to be pushed was the domino that John pushed. There was something. Uh, You don't come to God without, they used to call them in seminary, it was theological, they called them the the twin sisters of of the faith, repentance and faith. Uh, If you have just repentance and no faith in Jesus, um, that's a miserable life. I'd rather be the other way and just at least have however long God grants me breath, to not have to worry about that all the time. If you have just faith but no repentance, faith in what? Faith in faith? Faith in yourself? Uh, Faith and repentance go together, two sides together. John was talking about morality and repentance, and they came to him, and they said, Who are you? Who are you? Are you the Christ? No. They said, are you Elijah? They would have been basing this on uh, Old Testament scripture, Malachi 4, 5 for one. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Something's happening. Maybe this guy could be Elijah. Maybe, maybe this is an explanation of, of what's going on in the world, and maybe he's Elijah. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? What they meant by the prophet is the one that Moses um, had foretold about in, in Deuteronomy, uh, for instance. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, where Moses is addressing the people. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. Are you the prophet? He goes, no. Well, then who are you? Who are you? And he answered with an Old Testament reference, Isaiah 40, verse 3, where it says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare ye the way of the Lord. He was a voice, and that's all he described himself. He was a voice. Uh, Later on, you'll see him say about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. You'll see him say, there's one coming after me. I'm not worthy to even untie his shoelace. He's a voice. There was a humility in this because he was drawing quite a crowd and he could have capitalized on that crowd. He could have maybe leveraged some some political power, some religious power. He could have got some demands. He could have raised some people around him. He said, I'm just a voice talking about Jesus. A voice. I'm a voice that points to the one to come. And then he said, by the way, that one that I'm pointing to is here among us right now. And Jesus is there while they're saying, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? No, I'm a voice. I'm talking about the one to come who's going to do these things. He's the one you're interested in. Who are you? A sinner who needs to repent, place your faith in Jesus, and then be a voice that points people to Jesus. Just a voice. Not a cool Christian dude that can talk to these people and and set up your little sites and do your things and, and write your stuff and, and uh, command a, a great uh, speaking fee to tell people about Jesus. Uh, not that kind of a person that people look at. Uh, Christian celebrity can be out of control. John refused Christian celebrity. Not someone who's wise in your own eyes and who steals just a tiny little bit of God's glory for yourself. You're a voice. And who is Jesus? Who is Jesus and how do you have a proper view of him? John gave four titles for Jesus in this section. The first name he gave for Jesus we see in uh, verses 1, 19 through 28. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. He talks about Jesus as the Messiah. I'm not the Christ, but I tell you what, the Christ is here. The anointed one, a one with a particular specific task from God. Jesus came into the earth with a specific task from God. Jesus didn't just come down and say, well, let's see what happens. Uh, here's the percentages. Here's the. It's not like baseball where they do a, um, they have charts and they do the infield shift because this right-handed hitter hits to this field most of the time and all that stuff. Uh, Jesus didn't run projections and see possibilities of how it may happen. He came specifically with a task, 
and that is to die as a substitute on the cross for his people. You're a Christian to die for you, specifically for you, for your specific sins, so that you might be made holy and righteous and have a seat in heaven. He came with a purpose. He was the anointed one, the Christ. John recounted, and we read this, about the Spirit descending on the Lord from heaven, how, how God told him when, the, when, when the, the dove stays, when that Spirit stays, that's the one. That's how John knew he was the one. He is talking about Jesus being the one, the Savior. Later on, just a few verses later that we didn't get into this morning, but here's Nathaniel backing up what John said when he said to Jesus, you are the king of Israel. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah. He has authority. He can enable us just like a a king can get his people enabled and equipped to do his work. He's the fulfillment of all the prophecy. He called him the Messiah. He also called him, and this is for our purposes this morning or for this series about uh, Christ the shepherd, this is Christ the sheep. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that twice about Jesus. What's he talking about when it comes to the Lamb of God? Jesus is the Lamb of God. What does that mean? Go back, if you will remember, to Genesis chapter 22. When God has told Abraham, after making all these promises to Abraham, and I will make the whole earth blessed in you, all the nations shall be blessed in you and your offspring. And, and Abraham tries to do it a human way and gets, I, uh, gets uh, Ishmael, and that's not what God wanted. God gave him that son finally, that long-promised son. And he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him. And here's Abraham and Isaac trudging up that hill. And Abraham believing, we find out later, believing that God will raise him from the dead. Isaac saying, where's the sacrifice? We're going to go sacrifice together. Where's the sacrifice? I see the wood. We got all this stuff together. Where's the sacrifice? And, and Abraham gives those wonderful words that we read about this morning. God will provide a lamb. And there was the lamb, the substitute. All these stories in the Old Testament, not just moral stories or good stories, all of them pointing toward Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus. And he said, he's the lamb. Isaiah 53 that I quote every single week at the table. Uh, Earlier in that chapter, it says about Jesus, like a sheep before its shearers was dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was a lamb led to slaughter. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Exodus 12 that we talked about, that John read this morning, that lamb that died as a substitute. I heard a pastor one time, and boy, he did a good job uh, for me at that time. Maybe I just had my Wheaties that morning or something. But he really was painting this picture of, of the family going out and selecting the lamb and finding the perfect lamb. And the kids asking the dad, what's going on? And, and, and the hurt and the, the tragedy and the heartache, uh, even just as John read that passage again today, and I read it this week myself as we, were, as, as we checked that out, about eating all the, it was kind of gross and, and all the entrails and all that, eat all this and sacrificing, but taking the blood of that lamb and putting it on the door. And the angel of death passed through. And he saw that blood, death passed over your house. It went to the houses that didn't have the lamb on the doorpost. 
Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here's Isaac Watts again. He said, and listen to this, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Believing, we rejoice to see the curse removed. We bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing his wondrous love. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John gives four names in reply as they ask about who he is. He goes, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm a voice. Here's what you need to be thinking about. He's the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God. And then it says he's the baptizer with the Spirit. He's the one that baptizes you with the Spirit. He said, I baptize with water. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit. Uh, What's going on there? Read you one quote. We'll move on. Baptism is an initiatory experience. In the case of John the Baptist, it initiated its recipients into a readiness for the coming of the Messiah. In the New Testament church, baptism initiated into the family of God. To entitle Jesus, quote, the baptizer with the Spirit, unquote, means primarily that he is the one through whom we are initiated into God's kingdom through receiving the life of God the Holy Spirit. In this sense, it is a synonym of Jesus as the regenerator, the one through whom we are born again. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He says, you've got to be born of water and of spirit. It's talking about those things. Uh, Jesus is the one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A lot of us have traveled many different paths to Jesus. Some of us have sown wild oats. Some of us have just kind of wished we could and, 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 uh, and weren't able to or whatever. Uh, some of us were religious and great, great big sinners and hypocrites all the way through. Some of us uh, came early. Some came late. We all came to Jesus, but no one gets to God except through Jesus. That's the way. We put our faith. The common denominator in us is in our, our backgrounds and where we grew up and, and the songs we listen to or the sports people we know. Our common denominator as Christians is that we have come to the cross, we've repented of our sins, we've put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's the common denominator. That's what ties us together. That's the only thing that can tie us together and keep us together. He's the baptizer with the Spirit. And then it says, he is the Son of God. Verse 34, chapter 134. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. When he was baptized, God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. John 3 Verses 25 through 36, one page over. Listen to this. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, that's Jesus. Look, Jesus is baptized. They're all going after him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one 
thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Then he continues to talk about Jesus as we're getting to him calling Jesus the Son of God. He says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to us, to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. All these things we've been talking about, the baptizer of the Spirit, uh, the Messiah, all that. And then he goes on to say, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then this verse, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one who baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the Son of God. So we see ourselves properly. As a non-Christian, we see ourselves as someone who needs to repent and see Jesus. As Christians, we see ourselves as a voice. We see Jesus properly. And between now and heaven, there's a lot of interacting to do. Not just between you and God, but between you and people. We interact with people. We don't get to do what we sometimes would like to do. I just want to take my family. I just want to take Paula. I want to go find a place where the wood's already cut and stacked out in the middle of Saskatchewan somewhere. I want to have freezers full of of dried beef and, 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 and everything set up. I want to have no radio, no TV. I just want to have play checkers and, and have every book I want, want to read. And I just want to spend that time. And I don't want to interact with any people. Uh, well, that would probably get old after a while. And God made us to love people and God equipped us. And after that would be fun for, for a while. Maybe for some of us it would be fun for longer than for others. But God's put us in a world with people. John came to a world of people. Jesus didn't get to just come to earth and just isolate himself. He was there among people. And we're here with people. How do we see people? Do people matter? The answer is, of course, people matter. I wrote this to myself. Don't be so absorbed with taking your own spiritual temperature that you neglect the people in your life who are without Christ. Say that again. Don't be so absorbed with taking your own spiritual temperature that you neglect people in your life who are without Christ. We know God does the saving, but God chooses to use us people in proclaiming his word. By and large in scripture, you see that. He could call Paul on the road and God could save everybody that way and just zap him to heaven. God could do that. God does his business his way And he chooses to use us. And mostly what you see in in the scriptures of of people coming to Christ is God using them to proclaim. You have mothers and grandmothers teaching their kids. You have 
churches starting together and people getting saved there. You have all these things, and God uses people. So what do you do if you want to be a Christian in this world? Just hate it and withdraw from it? No. You do it God's way, and you, you take God's approach to people. So James Boyce said this. He, he made this whole passage about evangelism. And he said, you want, you want people to get saved? I mean, we, you know, I can look at TV, and I can see somebody that I just don't like. Maybe some politician. I just don't like him or her. Just, ah, gives me the heebie-jeebies, the creepy crawlies. Yuck. Every, how do you tell they're lying? The, the lips are moving. And I, I can say all these demeaning things, and I can do all that. Do I hate them? Talked about this. Well, do I want them to go to hell? If I had my choice and I could send them to heaven or hell, what would I do? I must not hate them because I don't want anybody to go to hell. If I said, here's the dividing line, and I cut a line right down the middle between, between Ruth and James, between Brenda and Elizabeth, and I flip a coin, and half of this church gets to go to heaven for one minute, and half of the church gets to go to hell for only 30 seconds. It'll seem like 30,000 years. We would both come back. Which, <laughs> Ruth, you, and you, I say, Ruth gets to pick your side. You want heaven or hell? <laughs> and Ruth says, heaven. Um, but uh, if we could go there and come back, it would change our lives forever. We know God does the saving. There is nothing... The Bible says nothing that you get that anybody gets that's not from God. But Jesus did say, love people enough to share the gospel with them. There's a general call. God does the work. God does the sorting out. Our job is to love people and to share the gospel with people and to pray for people. There's little note cards I have from you guys that I ran through again this morning. Man, there's people. And I pray for those people, for you. Three things, he said, and your witness will be effective. Three things that you can say like John said. John said, I'm not the light. Say, I'm not the light. But second, I was sent to bear witness of the light. The reason God didn't take you to heaven uh, is, is between you and God, but one of the reasons you're here is to continue to do what he told his disciples to do while they were here. Make disciples of all nations, uh, teaching them to do, observe all things, whatever I've commanded you, all that great commission stuff. That's for us too. And lastly, that all men through him might believe. That all men through him might believe. So those were our three points. Who am I? Who is Jesus? And what about people? Looking at our church, thinking about Christ the shepherd thinking about tough times. And boy, we can do all sorts of things for tough times to prepare. You know, gas is low. Fill those tanks up. Fill those cans up. Storm's coming. Get every bucket in your house. Put water in it because the power might go out. Uh, there's all these things. Stock up on some food. They go on sale. You do this. We, we can do all these things in, in preparation uh, for, for hard times. Our spiritual preparation as a congregation is to run to God, to cling to God, to get into our Bibles, to think about what's important and what matters and what's eternal, and to see what God has. God has 
used good times, and people have come to him. God has used hard times to bring people to him. Sometimes it takes somebody dying, some Christian dying, and kids to go to their parents' funeral and hear the gospel and say, you know, old dad was right. That mom, boy, she prayed for me and loved me, and the God uses those kinds of things to bring people to him. And so we look with joy at the prize set before us. We live our lives, whatever comes. We don't spend too much time looking at the news. It's all the same anyway. Uh, don't, I'm preaching to myself here. I took a fast. I said, I said this morning, I'm not going to look at any news article before I get into the pulpit. And I'm having like withdrawal symptoms now. I got to look. And no, it's better. It's better. See the times. Think about it. Pray about it. And understand our news for Christians is all ultimately good news. I'm going to leave us with this as we go to the table. Uh, God said, uh, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It goes on to say in that chapter, maybe before or after, I forget, but it says, if he gave you Jesus Christ, will he not freely give you all things? Uh, Jesus was here, that Messiah that John prophesied. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'll receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. So um, it's good to know and to not be surprised and don't get too comfortable in this world for what's coming and what's happening. But don't let that be your world, your final worldview. Let's pray. Go to the table. Lord, thank you so much for the salvation you've given us through Jesus. Help us as we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away our sin. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll help us, uh, give us clear heads and, and steady minds as we, as a church, even together, negotiate uh, whatever may be coming down the pike. We would pray, Lord, for a great revival to sweep this world and this land. We would pray for people to turn to you for people to look back and say, I can't believe I thought those things, and, and Jesus is my all in all. We would love that. We pray for those we love, and we ask for you to save them. But Lord, whatever is in store for this old world, we thank you that you've saved us and that our citizenship is in heaven. Thank you for where we're going because of the Lamb of God who took away our sins. In his name we pray, amen.